you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. Whether you love them or hate them, Disney animated movies have left their mark on the world of ideas, especially in America. They have taught several generations of children its view of love, friendship, the world, and how to live in it. Some of the quotes from Disney characters and Disney songs will seemingly stick in our minds forever. Always let your conscience be your guide. Let it go, let it go. You've got a friend in me. And of course, Hakuna Matata. Now, I won't get into Disney's humanistic, self-focused theology, but there is one famous quote that has always bothered me from the famous theologian Thumper the Rabbit. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all, said Thumper to Bambi. I believe I heard that from my mother and grandmother at least a thousand times when I was growing up. And they said it with such conviction like it was a Bible verse. Now, it certainly has some truth to it that may match up with what God's Word says to us about communication. We certainly should build people up with our words, speak words of kindness and compassion, and of course, speak the truth in love. But are we to take to heart this command to say nothing unless it's nice and sweet? Isn't there a time to say things that are not so nice? Certainly, the world would be a better place if everyone said nice words all the time. Yet if this would somehow become an absolute in our minds, then we would never correct wrong behavior. We would never admonish. We would never warn. We would never point out error. The Bible teaches us to do those things, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We could all hold our tongues more when we don't have a nice thing to say. But I do think a bigger problem in our communication is learning how to reprove someone rather than just reviling him or her. We need to dig down deep into the significant difference between reproving and reviling. One is proper for the Christian and the other is not. But one of these will also mark our experience as Christians since it marked our Savior. So when we face having to be not so nice, we must still stay grounded in how God's Word teaches us to communicate to others, not necessarily Disney characters. So we are talking today about two important aspects of our communication with one another, reviling and reproving. While you may not use these words very often or think in terms of these terms, they are both discussed extensively in God's Word. Both have to do with some level of conflict between people. But only one is pleasing to God if done in a godly way. Also, we need to talk about how we respond to both of these types of communication in a biblical way. So we begin in the book of Numbers today, Numbers 15, verse 30. It reads, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, 
and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Well, this is an early use of the word revile in Scripture. Let's take a moment to thoroughly define it. First, we have the component part, vile. Something vile is morally repugnant, morally flawed, corrupt, wicked, of no value, of inferior quality, disgusting, foul, ugly, degrading, humiliating, of low estate, without worldly honor or esteem. You get the idea. In an episode of one of my favorite comedies, Seinfeld, Newman calls broccoli a vile weed. To me, that's a better description of kale, but I digress. Fun fact, what do you get when you rearrange the letters of vile? Yes, you get evil. So we get what vile is. What does the re prefix do to it? It appears to be an intensive prefix, meaning again, or again and again. Put that all together, and to revile is to consider something evil, shameful, disgusting, ugly, foul, degraded, flawed, corrupt. And then in terms of communication, to revile someone is to insult or taunt or speak evil of a person in an abusive way again and again. In this Numbers passage, any Israelite who acted in a domineering or controlling manner was actually reviling the Lord. And what happened to the person who reviles the holy God of the universe? He was cut off from the people of God. We see another instance of the word revile in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Paul writes, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here we have Paul exhorting Christians not to associate with a bunch of people who claim to be Christians, yet are consumed with some great worldly sinful behavior. And you heard it. One such person is a reviler, someone who regularly reviles other people in daily communication. A habitual reviler of other people is considered such a serious sin pattern that a Christian should not have any fellowship at all with him or her. So why is it a problem to hang out with a reviler, someone who is constantly insulting others, taunting others, speaking evil about others in an abusive way? Well, for one thing, we humans easily pick up habits of communication, right? Especially bad communication. We are sort of like parrots, influenced by the speech of others. After all, that's how we learn to communicate in the first place. But it also has to be about reputation as well. When we hang around with revilers who are constantly speaking evil, ridiculing, insulting others, that reflects back on us. And why would we desire to associate with revilers anyway? Unless, of course, we sort of enjoy what they have to say. Well, let's check out another New Testament passage, Mark 15, verses 29 to 30. It reads, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The word derided is a synonym for reviled. 
you hear a sense of mocking as well, don't you, in this passage? Why were people reviling and deriding Jesus? Because he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. In the minds of these folks, he couldn't do that impossible task, dying on a cross. So they taunted Jesus with the cry of, save yourself and come down from the cross. Did they really think Jesus could come down from the cross? I don't think so. Reviling is always done with the intention of shaming a person, exposing a person as a fraud, communicating to others all that is wrong with a person. That's what these people are trying to do to Jesus. Well, then there's this corresponding passage, Luke 23, verses 38 and 39. It reads, There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Yes, you guessed it. The word railed is another synonym of reviled. So again, we read of someone reviling Jesus. This time, the criminal crucified next to him. You heard the taunting and the insults, right? Save yourself. Aren't you the Messiah? He was speaking evil of the Lord Jesus Christ. This criminal is a picture of all of those who reject Jesus as their Savior and Lord. We'll now listen to another passage from John 9, verses 26 to 28. They said to him, What did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Well, this is part of the story of when Jesus healed a blind man. The newly seeing man immediately followed Jesus, praising God for all that he did for him. How did the Pharisees, the highest of the religious leaders, treat this new follower of Jesus? Yes, they reviled him. Instead of praising God for his sight, they spoke evil of him. They taunted him. They verbally insulted him. They were disciples of Moses, not this false Messiah, Jesus. Sadly, they did not want to become disciples of Jesus at all. This is a picture, really, of all who follow Jesus. We are saved, delivered from our spiritual blindness. And what does the world think about that? They will revile us because our Savior was reviled as well. Which leads us to the book of Matthew. Listen to Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reviling is a big component of the persecution of Christians by non-Christians. For the sake of Christ, we will be verbally abused, insulted, taunted, all because we are saved by grace and follow Jesus. So that fact alone should remind us why we are not to revile others. Reviling belongs in the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. Which leads us to one last helpful passage about reviling, 1 Peter 2, verse 23. It reads, 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Apostle Peter is talking about Jesus being reviled. So how did Jesus respond to all the revilers in his life? Pretty simple. He did not revile in return. It is so tempting to taunt and insult and verbally abuse those who do those things to us. We want to respond in kind. We want to give people a taste of their own medicine. But our Savior teaches us the opposite communication approach. He chose to not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And Jesus gives us the secret to responding to revilers in our own life. We are to entrust ourselves to God, the judge of the universe. We don't have to worry and fret about people's insults and threats and abuse. Instead, we trust God for all that comes to us in the name of Christ. We believe that he will care for us and defend us when we are reviled. So let's return to my original question. If we are not to be revilers, if we are not to speak evil of others or insult them or taunt them, are we only supposed to say nice things all the time? Can't we speak to the evil out there or to the people who are doing wrong things? Thankfully, Scripture gives us the answer, gives us a communication tool that Christians can and must use in times of conflict and confrontation. It is our second re-word. Instead of reviling, we must grow in reproving. Reproving may look like reviling, may even feel like reviling, but it has a much different purpose and outcome. It is actually an essential part of biblical confrontation. We begin in the book of Proverbs with Proverbs 3, verse 12. Listen. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the starting place for reproof, like all of our biblical communication, is with the fact that God reproves. Well, let's stop and define reproof for a moment. The base word proof comes from the Latin probare, which means to prove worthy. In this case, the re isn't an intensifier, but acts as an opposite or reverser. So literally to reprove is to not be proved worthy. To put it another way, to reprove is to accuse, to blame, to charge as a fault. It is a call for someone to stop doing what is wrong and to start doing what is right. It is fault finding in the truest of way in another person. Again, I know this doesn't sound nice, We don't like to be blamed, accused, called out. But we begin with the fact that God reproves. And even more importantly, this proverb teaches that God actually reproves those he loves. So the act of reproving another is not hateful. It is not to shame or embarrass someone. It is a loving act, like what a loving father does to a son. A big part of our sanctification is God reproving us. And he does that through the people in our life. Christians who can speak the truth in love, finding error and fault in us that must be corrected. 
Well, let's stay in the book of Proverbs with Proverbs 9, verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So here we learn that there are people who you can reprove and those you cannot reprove. Reproof is not for a scoffer, for a mocker, a foolish person who is not looking for any sort of correction. So if you reprove someone like this, you will get a pretty hateful response. On the other hand, a wise person actually loves to be reproved. He wants to learn and grow as a Christian. He wants to change. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if the reproof is a false accusation where you're not at fault? Well, we'll talk about that in a bit. For now, just focus on reproofs that are truthful. If you reprove someone who is wise, you will be loved. This should encourage us to reprove a certain sort of person. By the way, this is one test of seeing if children are fools or becoming little wise people. Parents spend half of their lives reproving their children. It is a beautiful thing when they actually start to love you for it instead of feeling like you're just reviling them. Well, here's another passage that helps us. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor who needed to learn how to shepherd the flock. And look what is part of how he is to pastor people, reproving and rebuking. Preachers of the word have a special responsibility to reprove Christians who are not living for Jesus. This is a good thing. We all need our pastors to do this in our lives. But notice that Paul also charges Timothy with reproving with patience and teaching. A reproof must always be given with love. It must be done in a way that teaches another person why they are wrong and what needs to change in their life. The act of reproving is not to be like a drive-by shooting where you email or text someone to tell them uh, what he did wrong. It is meant to be part of a patient conversation to talk out the fault, not just to assign blame. Even though this charge was given to a pastor from Paul, it is every Christian's responsibility to reprove others in this way. We need one another to see things in our lives that we can't see ourselves. Well, here's another important passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So here is Paul teaching similar things to Titus, another young minister of the gospel. 
Titus is to declare all these things. In other words, preach and teach the gospel in context of exhorting and rebuking with all authority. The activities of exhorting and rebuking are two aspects of reproving. Rebuking is more of the negative side, pointing out what is wrong, placing blame, finding fault. Exhorting is the positive aspect, calling on someone to do what is right. More importantly, Paul reminds us that we reprove others with and on the authority of the Word of God. Our reproof must be biblically grounded, not just subjective on our part. Now we'll go back to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. It reads, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Well, here again, we have Paul speaking of rebuke, a part of reproving another person. Now, no one wants to be rebuked in front of other people. How embarrassing and shame-producing. So why would Paul teach that we should rebuke in the presence of others? Shouldn't we do that privately, Paul? Well, first, you have to notice that Paul is referring to people who persist in sin, not a first-time offense. So what Paul is doing is matching up nicely with Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, where he teaches that we are to rebuke privately first, then two-on-one, all the way to a public rebuke. This is really describing the process of church discipline, which only becomes public when someone is unrepentant and persistent in their sin. But what I want to emphasize is that reproof is all about change. It is motivated by a desire to want to see someone change. So sometimes, unfortunately, that takes a public rebuke. And this sort of reproof also teaches and warns others, doesn't it? But in the end, reproving comes from a heart of love and mercy for another. We don't want to see a person stuck in those sinful patterns. Well, now let's hear from Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Well, this shows our responsibility to reprove others very clearly. If we see our Christian brother or sister in sin, we are to rebuke him or her. And notice the goal. Repentance. Biblical heart change. If true repentance comes, then forgiveness follows. Reviling just continues to taunt and insult and abuse another. But effective reproof that receives repentance is only once. And then the matter is to be over and settled. So it is a godly responsibility to call out sin, to confront it, and to rebuke it. To only be nice or say nice things to others is not Christian. It is often just an avoidance of our duty to our fellow Christians denying them the growth that they need. Well, just one last passage at the end of God's Word in Revelation 3, verse 19. It reads, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
Now, as I said, these are some of the final words of the Bible and the final words of Jesus. What great and glorious words they are. In order to be an effective reprover of others, you must desire to be reproved by Jesus. This is his love for you. And Jesus' reproof is to lead to zealous, eager repentance. It is an act of grace and mercy for us, not condemnation. So when we reprove others, we must be a channel of Christ's love to them and for them. That's a hard thing to do as a sinful human being. Before I do a brief review that will help us move from reviling to reproving, I want to address the issue of what to do when you are falsely reproved. First, if it is a true reproof out of love, even if it's not accurate, then you should still be thankful that the other person reproved you. If it is reviling, then you must confront him or her in love. Secondly, you can gently defend yourself if it is false and demonstrate the reproof's inaccuracy. Don't just get angry at the injustice and lash out. Then thirdly, use this as an opportunity to teach yourself to be careful to have all the facts before reproof and learn how to do it in love. And then finally, remember, Jesus was falsely reproved too. How did he respond? Well, now on to our review of the difference between reviling and reproving. First, reviling is motivated by the desire to expose someone in order to embarrass them or shame them. Reproving, on the other hand, is motivated by the desire to confront someone's sin in order to restore him to repentance, in order to see biblical change. Next, a reviler acts out of hatred of the person, not of the evil. A reviler wants nothing to do with the person he is reviling. But on the other hand, reproof is speaking the truth in love in order to have a good, restored relationship with that person again. Then third, reviling has no limits since it is always about defaming or vilifying another. Reviling just pours on the insults and the taunts. On the other hand, reproof is limited by the Word of God. It is limited by how God teaches us to reprove, just the truth and just in love. Finally, reproof is a loving duty of Christians. Reviling is just the world's way of destroying people, including Christians. The truth is that it is our sinful nature that wants to shame and embarrass someone with our tongues. Oftentimes, that person has done something to us that we think deserves reviling. They are evil, and we want to tell them that they are evil. But what all people, especially Christians, really need is a loving, gracious reproof. Only then is there the real opportunity for heart change. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.